The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Hi everybody. Some of you I haven't seen for a while. I've been on retreat and it's not around much in the last six weeks. So it's nice to be back home. And I want to publicly thank Craig and Mara and Gail and Veronica, who've covered uh, over the last number of weeks. Um, it's great being able to leave and know that the place is in good hands. So we're finishing up a series of talks, as most of you know, on the seven factors of awakening. And so I want to review uh, the whole list and spend some time with equanimity that Veronica began talking about last Wednesday and maybe even spend one more week on this before we begin a new topic in the new year. Sometimes, you know, when you hear a list of positive or wholesome mental factors, our normal response is, well, where do I get them? <laughs> you know, where can I go buy them or how can I make them happen? But we want to remember that these are inherent qualities of the mind. So it's much more about discovering in our own experience these factors. And really the way we strengthen them is, one, having faith or confidence that there is equanimity or there is an, this quality of investigation or the possibility of mindfulness. And the way to develop it is simply to keep noticing it. It's the attention itself that strengthens the positive factors of mind. And you probably heard me say, but it's, it is worth repeating this basic principle in awareness practice, which is paying attention to wholesome, skillful states strengthens them. And paying attention to unwholesome states of mind weakens them. And this is something we can discover directly. I mean, the next time we have some unwholesome mind state that we're caught up in, like jealousy or anger or discontentment. Look at it. Open to it. Now, we have to open to it without any judgment. It's just like being present with it. And you'll see that it's very hard to be fully conscious of anger without it falling apart. If we're fully open, clear, allowing the anger to be, so we're not uh, kind of turning it into something bad, but simply knowing it's like this. Well, the anger, it can't hold. Uh, anger requires not uh, the opposite of clarity. It requires ignorance or blindness. And then on the other side of the equation, if we're mindful of kindness, if, if the heart is just has an upwelling of a feeling of being intimate or connected or loving or kind, and we really are mindful, present, not grabbing a hold of it because it's a wholesome mind state or a pleasant mind state, but just aware kindness is like this. Well, it really blooms. It actually gets stronger. We understand that we don't need to grab a hold of it because it's a natural thing that has its own causes and conditions, and we don't need to be greedy about it. And so it tends to thrive in that environment. So that's the reason to spend time studying the seven factors of awakening, is one, to 
at least on an intellectual level, get clear that there are these different positive or wholesome skillful qualities of mind and that they're already arising and passing at different times in our lives. And if we know that, we can be better at recognizing them when they do arise and then noticing how that, in a sense, waters them. It sort of strengthens them, just the attention, just the recognition. I mean, it would be great if we were all connected by some sort of super cell phone. And just to hear from each other every time somebody noticed a wholesome mind state. It would be inspiring, you know. Patty's feeling a lot of joy or, you know, Mary's feeling a lot of equanimity. And just, because then it would remind us, oh, Gene is really settled into a lot of mindfulness. Well, just it would remind us, well, what's in the way of me being mindful? You know, this heart, this mind, mindfulness is also possible. So much of... Uh, are, you know, so much of the reason we're kind of caught in our sort of ordinary drudgery of our personality, you know, whatever your tendency is. My tendency is often towards fear and controlling energy in terms of the unwholesome conditioning that this personality has. So much of the reason that I, my mind ends up there over and over again, it has no confidence or, you know, when it is in those places, it has no confidence in the possibility of something other than that, right? So when we're really like sad and, and lost in the sadness or angry and lost in the angry, anger or greedy and lost in the greed, it's like the mind doesn't see any other possibility. It just assumes this is who I am. This, in a sense, defines who I am now. And we stop looking beyond that. In a way, we accept our miserable fate to be a lonely human being or to be whatever it is that we're experiencing. So I didn't get a chance to talk much about the calming factors because the other teachers that have covered for me covered tranquility and concentration and equanimity. But in a sense, it's, it's useful to think about these calming factors of tranquility and concentration and equanimity as just a general theme in the mind or heart. And to just understand from our own observation what supports greater degrees of tranquility. Concentration is a funny word because it, it, for most of us Westerners, when we hear that word concentration, we think of a willful effort. And it's not so useful. So even though it's more awkward, it would be better for us to use the word something like unification of mind or wholeness of mind instead of concentration. So tranquility or calmness and unification or wholeness of mind and equanimity or impartiality or balance. So these qualities of mind arise naturally when the heart or mind isn't seeking happiness. The thing that's most disturbing for us is seeking happiness. Seeking happiness is agitating. It's so ironic, <laughs> but it's really true. I mean, we could be having a great relaxing vacation, someplace really nice, you know, a cabin up north with no noise or 
beautiful beach somewhere or, you know, you just imagine what would be really relaxing for you. You know, and we pick up a magazine and we see something in the magazine and we take the hook, you know, oh, I'd like that. This would make me happy. And then we go from being, you know, relatively content on vacation to disturbing the mind because we think, if only this, I'd be happy. And so we're constantly agitating the mind. If it's not if only, then I'll be happy. It's if only I could get rid of, then I'd be happy. I'll be happy. You know, so we see a picture of a thin person. Oh, if only I could lose a few pounds. Or whatever. So we agitate the heart or mind by getting involved in this idea that happiness is somewhere out there in the future when we get rid of something or when we get something. So the whole idea of this second half of the factors of awakening, the, the calming factors of tranquility or concentration or unification of mind and equanimity, it's that these are the natural qualities that are apparent when the mind or heart isn't caught up in getting something, getting happiness out there. Does that make sense? So then the question is, what is it, how is it that the heart stops seeking happiness out there in the future? What needs to happen for the heart to let go of its deep habit of seeking happiness sometime else in the future? And you'll find, I think, that one of the proximate causes for letting go of that seeking happiness out there when I get rid of this or get that is feeling happiness now. So this is, you know, often, you know, almost always, but not, it shouldn't be this way, but almost always when we talk about mindfulness, we always talk about being mindful of painful experience, you know, mindfulness of the pain in the knee, mindfulness of boredom, mindfulness of restlessness. But it's just as important, maybe even more important, to be mindfulness of happiness and contentment and joy and ease. Because something really important blooms from that awareness, which are these awakening factors. Because when there is some happiness, even if it's very mundane happiness, like taking a nice bath or I was up north in this, in this real wilderness, um, a small monastery in Canada, but they had this really nice sauna. I mean, it was kind of run down, but it very effective. And, uh, you know, just sitting there in the sauna, you know, getting a good sweat up. And then they had this little room, uh, like another sauna, except it was all screened. And it was really cold up there, often below zero. And just to sit in there, it was really pleasant. You know, to be really hot and then to go into that really cold room and just sit there and your whole body is steaming, you know, it fills the room with steam just from the heat on your skin. And uh, and just to feel that, and because I was on retreat, you know, I had the wherewithal in moments at least to just notice, well, this is pleasant. And to let the pleasantness have its effect because when the mind, heart, is mindful of pleasantness, it triggers, it, it sets in motion tranquility because 
when we're happy and we pay attention to it. Now, sometimes when I was there, I'd be thinking, i got to get myself one of these. In fact, I remember, at some point, I don't remember exact time, renovating, like, as soon as Common Ground goes to the new building, we're turning the office into a sauna. <laughs> you know, and just think, okay, now where would we place it? And would it be a natural ga- gas sauna or electric sauna? And what are the advantages and disadvantages? And would it be big or small? And, you know, and that's agitating because that's putting happiness out there. But if instead I would just notice the pleasant sensations and be mindful, that means really receiving the pleasantness, you know, or whatever that is in that moment, then it triggers, it sets emotion tranquility. Because tranquility, that calmness, is simply the lack of agitation in the mind. Tranquility isn't something itself. It's the absence of agitation. And what agitates the mind, as I've been saying, is that seeking of happiness somewhere else. So when we notice pleasantness, like, and generally, if we're skillful, we can notice pleasantness in a lot of moments. It doesn't mean the moment is completely pleasant. It just means that there's some pleasant aspects in the moment. And even when the moment is very unpleasant, being mindful, being open to unpleasantness is pleasant. There's, there's, it's a, you have to develop a taste for this kind of pleasantness. Because <laughs> it's subtle. But it's a, beauti- it's a really beautiful mindset to be mindful of unpleasantness, whether it's an unpleasant emotion or unpleasant physical sensation. It's a really beautiful mind state to be mindful. And to notice that can also trigger tranquility. And some of you, I'm sure, have noticed that, if, especially if you've been on retreats and you've had a lot of physical pain, and you can be sitting there for days, or certainly hours, you know, one sit after another, <clears throat> paying attention to the pain in the body, and on different levels, sometimes gross levels, sometimes very subtle levels, resisting the pain. You know, it looks like we're being mindful, but we're kind of being mindful, and we're kind of resisting, waiting, hoping that it goes away, being mindful in order to make it go away. But then every once in a while, we'll see that we can flip. The mind will flip. We're sitting there, we're mindful, and the mind comes into balance. And the mind just flips from kind of suffering with the pain in the body to the pleasantness of a mind completely accepting the pain as it is, not resisting. And it's almost like... One image I'd like to use is when I went to high school in Massachusetts, there was a river that went through the campus. And uh, sometimes in the spring, when it was warm enough, we'd go swimming or the fall. And uh, it was a nice river because mostly you could stand in it. But it was you know, at least waist high and sometimes up to your neck. And it had a nice current. And you'd have to lean into the river to uh, not be swept away by it. And... Uh, Sometimes I would imagine, you know, just you'd find that perfect balance that where you could stay kind of steady. And it was like uh, you could kind of play a game with your mind as you relaxed right in that balance point as if the river were flowing through you. So instead of like, okay, I'm really going to, you know, resist, and you're using the strength in your legs to kind of really hold yourself there. Just by finding that point, you know, using gravity, 
and the angle, you can really relax. The river won't take you away. And it's a little bit like it is for us in life. We can feel like the circumstances in our life are a personal affront to us. And we sort of use our mental muscles to kind of make ourselves get through the day, get through the meeting, get through life. But there's a way also to, with a balanced mind, to become transparent or very simple. So there's nobody resisting, nobody trying to make something some way or this way or that way. And that's what happens in a moment of mindfulness. And that's also pleasant. So when we start noticing these brief moments or not so brief moments of pleasantness, mental, physical pleasantness, it triggers tranquility. Because in that moment, the mind, heart isn't trying to get anything. It's already what we want, which is pleasant. So the whole spiritual path, it isn't about like not wanting pleasant, like somehow if only we could condition ourselves not to want pleasant experience. Uh -uh. It's coming into alignment with the way things are. Being a human being, being a sentient being, means we prefer pleasant to unpleasant. The desiring pleasant experience isn't pleasant. Craving pleasant experience isn't pleasant. You see? So it's not that the way we're made up is wrong. It's what we're doing about it. It's our strategy, which is we, uh, we feel we have somehow been conditioned to believe that craving pleasant experience leads to pleasant experience. But when we pay attention, we notice craving pleasant experience is unpleasant. It's suffering. And being afraid of unpleasant experience is also suffering. You see? So the path, even though we don't normally talk about it this way because it's confusing, the spiritual path is a path of pleasantness. We're not denying pleasantness. We're just getting smart about how our strategies don't work because they're based on ignorance. That self-centered craving leads to happiness or self-centered fear leads to happiness, leads to something that's pleasant. It doesn't. So then to ignite these last three factors of awakening, tranquility, that wholeness or concentration in the mind and equanimity, we have to start understanding uh, the power of pleasant experience, especially wholesome pleasant experiences, pleasant experiences that don't trigger a lot of attachment. That's what I mean by wholesome pleasant experiences. And really use them for the skillful effect that they have, which is to ignite tranquility. And see, that tranquility is just the relaxation of the heart when it's not being agitated. And when the heart's mind is tranquil, then it's easy to be whole, wholly present. That's what concentration means. The heart, mind is wholly present, meaning it's not distracted, because it's not distracted by thinking about what it wants or thinking about what it's afraid of, because it's feeling content. And so it's very easy for the mind to become still. That's part of concentration or this unification is there's a stillness that stillness is just the absence of agitation 
And what is that stillness halal? Clarity, right? So here, concentration is also uh, often uh, uh, used in conjunction with clarity. The more concentration, the more clear or penetrating the mind is. We're actually seeing more clearly the way things are, how it is now, as opposed to a mind that's scattered because it's seeking something, it's wanting, it's afraid. It's scattered by all of these pushing and pulling of trying to make the moment the way we think we need it to be or want it to be. But it's not here, it's out there. So that creates waves. The waves disturbs the clarity. But when the heart is tranquil, the mind is still and clear, and wisdom arises in that clarity. And the wisdom basically is that Things arise and pass away due to causes and conditions. And these causes and conditions are, uh, there's a, an intric- intricate and universal web of causes and conditions. There's no center to the web of causality, of conditionality. This is what's seen with clarity, stillness in mind. A mind that has no agenda, right, because it's already content, then it, it sees the, the web. You know, it sees how everything is part of everything. Not a part, but it sees things in this whole interdependent way. And that leads to letting go, which is really what equanimity is. Equanimity, in a way, as an ordinary human being, an unenlightened human being, Equanimity is our way of understanding the flavor of enlightenment. So when we have a strong experience of equanimity, that's the flavor of freedom that the Buddha points to, that enlightened people point to. That kind of balance <clears throat> that allows the heart or mind to be in the middle of a messy life, which most of us probably are in the middle of. Maybe some of us have more mess now in this moment than others but generally we all have messy lives and we can try to muscle our way through or we can live a life that develops a wisdom you know the wisdom of equanimity or balance so it's a heart of mind that's not disturbed by the conditions and so there's two paths the spiritual path especially in terms of how the buddha talked about it is different than the worldly path. The worldly path is, I'm trying to create conditions that will be satisfactory for me. So my happiness depends on my success in getting rid of the bad stuff and getting the good stuff. That's called a worldly life or a a non-spiritual life. A spiritual life isn't so... We're partly concerned about conditions, but ultimately a spiritual life isn't concerned about the conditions It's concerned about cultivating or realizing a heart that can be with any condition, can be at ease, happy, peaceful, no matter the conditions. So it's it's not emphasizing creating good conditions. But, you know, when we build a building, a new meditation hall, we do try to make it a nice place, right? You know, we could just get a pigsty and practice in a pigsty or or it was a pigsty actually 
You wouldn't believe the grease we found underneath the griddle and all the other things. It was unbelievable. So we could have left it like that and just practiced in the old diner because, you know, then it would have given us something to work with. But, but you know, to, so, to some degree, like at the beginning of the sit, we really do what we can to be comfortable. But then once the sit begins, we, we really let go of constantly manipulating the posture to make it comfortable. And for at least a period of time, we, we, we do this practice, the spiritual, the true spiritual practice, which is how can this heart, this mind, be free with the sensations as they actually are? How can this heart-mind be free with the mind state, the thoughts, as they actually are here, coming and going? So instead of trying to get rid of the thoughts that are there, get rid of the mood that's there, get rid of the body sensations that are there, get rid of the guy next to us who's breathing too loudly, or the windows that are, you know, I mean, the temperature that's too cold or too warm. Instead of trying to fix things, how is it possible for this heart to be at ease with these conditions. And we don't need an answer. It's just like moment to moment. And this is really equanimity, the practice of equanimity. And it's not, we don't fake it because, boy, is that, it's not only unpleasant for us, it's unpleasant for everybody around us if we pretend to be equanimous. You know, oh, I don't care. It's sort of like, uh, if you watch or listen to Garrison Keillor on Prairie Home Companion, he's often making fun of Minnesota, sort of Minnesota nice, you know, which is a sort of false equanimity. Oh, whatever you want. I don't know. And we pretend that we don't have preferences and that we don't care, but we do care. It's just not appropriate. We feel like it's not appropriate to state our preference or to kind of assert ourselves. So that's not equanimity. Equanimity is, is a, arises out of wisdom. And wisdom arises out of concentration or wholeness or the stillness of mind. A mind that doesn't have an, any agenda, so it actually sees things as they are. And generally in Buddhism, the way we talk about that insight is we're seeing the conditionality of experience. That includes, it's not just like the experience out there is conditional, but we're seeing that the nature of our mind is exactly the same as the nature of everything around us. The way people move, the way people speak, the way the nature, the environment works. It's all conditional. It all comes and goes due to causes and conditions. And conditionality implies there's no center to it. Right? There's not a mark behind, you know, there's not this person behind the unfolding of my life. Just like there's not a center to the winter that's unfolding now. Where is the center to this season? There's no center. There's no center to, wind, uh, to winter or to the weather. There's no center to a person. We have these designations. You know, we have a word called Mark Nunberg or this person here or this season or this building. But there really isn't a center to anything because it's a web of cause causes and conditions. And that's the insight with wisdom. When the mind is still, it's not a, just an intellectual concept as I'm describing now. It's an intuitive awakening. We actually see this or open to this as an experience. It doesn't matter what we're paying attention to because 
if we're paying attention to the pain in the knee or the breath or sounds or mental activity, all of it shares this uh, basic truth of conditionality. So we can wake up to conditionality no matter the particular object we're paying attention to in the moment. And the mind wakes up and the result is the letting go into equanimity, allowing things to come and go without reacting. Not without responding. The body, personality responds, but it's not a reaction out of fear or greed. So that's a whole nother talk. So I just want to go backwards. So the equanimity is, the proximate cause for the equanimity is wisdom that arises out of concentration or the wholeness or stillness of the mind. The stillness comes when tranquility is there. Tranquility is the relaxation of the heart when it's not being agitated by the identification with greed or the identification with anger or neediness or loneliness or any of the sort of self-centered mind states that we've been conditioned to fall into, to take up. So when that's let go of, then there's tranquility. Now, the, the tranquility, that uh, non-agitation, really comes from joy, the experience of pleasantness, right? That's pity. That's one of the energizing factors of awakening that, I guess Craig talked about that uh, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. I'm not sure if Mira also talked about that the next Wednesday. And so pity, or joyful interest, or rapture, it's called, or translated as. And uh, this is just a, a, a moment of feeling free, a, a moment of feeling unburdened in life. And that's what triggers the relaxation, the non-agitation in the mind. And the way it works is that that moment of joy or rapture arises when we make the appropriate effort to abandon self-centered thinking and to cultivate wholesome thoughts like love, like patience, like generosity or gratitude or mindfulness. Right? So the joy, the freedom, the, the joy which is really just a moment of freedom, that arises when when the mind is making appropriate effort, right effort. And right effort comes out of investigation. Investigation is using mindfulness with some sustaining effort, some sort of really looking into the present moment and really realizing, oh, I can relate skillfully in this moment or unskillfully. If I take it personally, things get really tight and painful. And if I don't take it personally, if I just understand that things are coming and going and allow things to unfold as they are right now, then then there's a, that, that insight then really drives or really informs how to make effort in our life. So we have mindfulness which allows us to investigate. <coughs> Investigation reveals that there's skillful ways to relate and unskillful ways to relate to experience. Then we know how to make effort. So we've got this body-mind that's just built to make effort in life. We are designed to do things, you know, as a 
as a living being. And so now we know what to do. We make effort to do what's wholesome, what's skillful, what leads to release, and we make effort to prevent and abandon what leads to stress or tightness. And that leads to moments of joy. Joy leads to tranquility. Tranquility leads to the stillness, the wholeness of the mind, which leads to insight, which leads to the letting go and to equanimity. So having moments of being equanimous until we get caught again. And then, and then like one of the great things about getting caught, one of the only great things about getting caught is it's painful. And that reminds us, if we've been trained right, it reminds us to be mindful. So when we're suffering, that can be the alarm that says, oh, well, maybe I should pay attention to what's going on here. So we pay attention and we see, oh, then we start to investigate. A couple moments of mindfulness together is investigation. We're looking at the stress or the pain in this moment with interest and we see, oh, there's a skillful way to relate to this pain and there's an unskillful way to relate. But we'll only see that choice between skillfulness and unskillfulness if we're being mindful and investigating. And then we know how to make effort then from then on. And the effort leads to moments of real joy when we have abandoned our unskillful tendencies. And the joy leads to relaxation of the heart, ease or tranquility, which leads to that wholeness, stillness, clarity, insight, into the conditionality, to the non-personal the nature of all experience. So we let go. We're only taking a hold because we think it's personal. We're kind of trapped by this idea that life is personal. What happens is personal. So it makes perfect sense if it's personal to get tight about it, to grab and push. But if we wake up intuitively to how it's not personal, it's conditional, we don't even need to, there's nobody who has to let go. Letting go just happens. Equanimity arises naturally from that intuitive insight. So this is the whole dynamic of these seven factors. From mindfulness to the three energizing, the three tranquilizing. And some of you know that the, probably the most popular and um, important discourse the Buddha gave was the discourse on mindfulness, the four foundations of mindfulness. So it's basically the Buddha really put mindfulness as the center of his path that he taught, the way he pointed out that we should live or practice. And in this, this, this discourse, he says, well, there are four things to be mindful of. Mindful of the five physical senses. He calls this mindfulness of the body, but it really includes all five physical senses, hearing, smelling, tasting, tactile experience, and seeing. And then the rest are, have to do with the mind mindfulness of feeling. So this is noticing the pleasantness and unpleasantness. Mindfulness of the mind state. You know, is there greed in the mind? Is the mind colored by greed right now or loneliness, sadness right now? So what's the mood or the coloring of the mind or filter of the mind? And then the last, this is what I wanted to mention, is the Buddha said, be mindful of some teachings I'm giving you. Be mindful of what gets in the way of mindfulness. These are called the hindrances. Be mindful of the seven factors of awakening. 
right? So he's basically saying there's some lists here that it's really good to memorize and then to be mindful of so that you very quickly know what hinders mindfulness. And you can recognize it very quickly. You've trained yourself. Just like if you train yourself to recognize trees, like you really memorize an oak tree has bark like this, it has leaves like this, it has acorns like this. Then once you memorize it, it's like you walk through the woods. You don't have to make any effort. You're just like, oh, that's an oak tree, you know, that's a poplar, that's a maple, that's a... And it's the same thing with the hindrances and the seven factors of awakening. When we do this specific work, like we train this week, you know, to notice equanimity, then as we live our life for the next number of decades, it will be natural. When equanimity arises, it will be just that recognition. Oh, this is equanimity, and it's like this. And then that will, just the recognition of equanimity will help you see the causality, how you got there. You know how it is. Like, sometimes when we're really depressed, we go, well, how did I get so depressed? And go, oh, yeah, I thought about that, and that, what, that was... And we can kind of go step by step and realize, oh, I had this memory of breaking up with my high school girlfriend, you know, and that made me think about, you know, this feeling that nobody likes me, and then that made me think about all the people who I think don't like me now, and that made me think, and then all of a sudden, here I am, you know, I'm home alone, and then I thought, now I'm depressed, or not feeling good. And it's the same thing when we recognize a moment of equanimity or any of these wholesome states. It's like what will come online in the mind is, well, how I got there. And that's exactly what we want to see. We want to see that these wholesome states, they're not just random. And the more we recognize how these wholesome states (coughs) come to be, the more we can can ignite them. And the more we ignite them, then, then we're working on a more subtle level of just keeping them all in balance. A little bit more of the energizing factors, a little bit more of the calming factors. So just to learn how to keep the mind in this wonderful balanced state. It's really a resilient mind. A resilient mind meaning that no matter how messy my life life gets, this heart, this mind can stay balanced. Meaning it won't take it personally. And because it's not taking it personally, it will know how to respond with wisdom and compassion instead of, you know, fear or greed. So I'll leave it here so that we have some time to check in. If you have any questions on any of the factors or equanimity, or just in general, any questions from your practice that you'd like to bring up for the group or comments, anything come to mind? Tom? No, it's a good question. Well, in uh, in what the Buddha taught, there were devas and celestial beings and high gods, but they were also conditioned beings just like us. They were just much more refined and pure. 
So he he never denied the existence of God. And in fact, if you read the discourses, there are there are a number of discourses that include the devas, including the very high gods. And so, of course, there's the ultimate god, Brahma god, you know, the number one god of all. But even that being is a conditioned being. So Brahma, and this is just their cosmology, so I'm not saying this is what it is, but this is just how they described it at that time. So all beings, whether they're in hell, which are also included in the Buddhist cosmology, or in the highest uh, Brahma realm, all beings are subject to coming and going. So the Brahma, the highest god, might exist for countless eons relative to a human being. But eventually that being will dissolve and take birth somewhere else until there's no attachment. It's the non-attachment that leads to the ending of birth and death. That until there's, as long as there's any identification, there's continued birth and death. So, the, I think your earlier question was, well, what did the Buddha depend on, you know, to kind of uh, guide the path? Is that kind of your question? Yeah. Well, what it is that we depend on on this path is wisdom or understanding. So that's why we're not depending on an outside force. The Buddha can't really do anything for us or any wise, loving person, including the highest God. The only thing that can be done is to point the way. Each being has to do it themselves. And what we have to do is we have to understand the way things are. See, this mind stream is misperceiving and then acting out according to its misperceptions. And so the only way to correct what's off is to go from misperception <coughs> to clarity, to insight. And so the only thing a being, any being can do, even the most exalted being can do, is to help point out this problem of misperceiving and point us in the direction of clarity so that the mind starts to open or see things as they are. And that's what resolves the basic problem, which is ignorance or misperception. That's the Buddhist point of view on, on this kind of human predicament. But it's not just, you know, from this cosmological, cosmological point of view, it's not just a human predicament. I forget if it's 32 realms of existence, but there are dozens of realms of existence in the Buddhist cosmology. And humans are kind of in the, toward the bottom, um, but it's I evidently, according to the Buddha, the ideal realm for awakening because there is this balance between pleasure and pain. And in the higher realms, there's not much suffering. And so there's not much incentive to look deeply. And uh, uh, the Buddha taught a number of these Davis. I mean, there's many stories, and even, and again, I have no personal experience, but uh, even modern-day practitioners, uh, teachers rather, talk about uh, uh, interacting with Davis and teaching. So just because a being is very ethereal and beautiful and loving, doesn't mean 
they understand the deepest truths. But it means that they have a lot of purity. And who knows, in a previous life, we may have all been angels. We don't know. Or, or, and you know, it, it's very interesting in that way too. It's like Moggallana, the chief disciple of the Buddha, had very recently been in a deep hell realm before being born as the Buddha's chief disciple. So there's a lot of movement up and down. We're not, not so fixed. Except in Buddhism, that's more of a Hindu concept. In Buddhism, the word that's used is rebirth. Because reincarnation really has a sense that there's a somebody being reborn. And in Buddhism, because the, the basic premise is conditionality, there isn't really a somebody being reborn. It's just this mind, this experience arises, this sense of being arises in this moment, and then it dies. And then it arises in the next moment and dies. And one moment conditions the next, just like a candle and lighting the next candle. This candle conditions the next candle. But the flame, as you go from one candle to the next, is it really the same flame? Well, it kind of is and it kind of isn't. It's just like one moment's conditioning the next, which is conditioning the next, which is conditioning the next. So in Buddhism, we don't say that I take rebirth. We just say there's a mind stream or there's a stream. One moment conditions the next. That's happening right now in this life. It's just the same way that it happens in the next life. It's just that the last moment of this body, the mind moment, conditions the next moment wherever that is and maybe in some womb somewhere. But again, I don't have proof. This is just, you know, kind of a spiritual model that's used. And it's best to just hold all of these things, whether it's the, you know, the Christian model or the Buddhist model, just to hold it as a skillful means, like a, a way of explaining things and judge it based on its usefulness. Like, if we use this model, does it evoke a lot of anger or greed or a lot of, you know, clarity? I mean, what, what's its effect on our lives? Is it a useful effect? Other thoughts or questions? Yeah. David? So in Buddhism, is prayer like um, just seeking clarity? Is that the main point of prayer? Well, prayer works in a lot of different ways in Buddhism. There are uh, uh, <coughs> beings that we can invoke their support and... and uh, and guidance, right? Because there are beings that understand more than we do. So why it, it it is useful to either directly ask them if they're around, or just to, in a sense, through prayer, energetically align ourselves with their wisdom or their strength or their love. So that's one aspect of prayer. Another is uh, is more kind of speaking directly to our own heart and mind. So in a way, this is what we call aspiration, which really has a lot of similarities to prayer, where we're cultivating an aspiration to live in a particular way. And uh, another kind of prayer in Buddhism is to send out, it's basically uh, letting our heart bless others 
through sending out loving kindness, wishes of loving kindness, wishes of, of compassion to ourselves and to others. So there's, you know, sort of different aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the metta practice, yeah. What else comes to mind? Funny. I don't know where this question came from, but I would just like to know if you've ever met anyone who you thought was an enlightened being. Well, you know, there are different degrees of enlightenment, but, uh, I, yeah, <laughs> I think so. But, you know, I don't, you know, you can't know for sure, but I, I feel pretty confident. <laughs> I feel pretty confident, even from my own practice, about enlightenment as a, because just being, I'm just beginning to understand the path means that we have some sense of what this path is about, like there's some glimpse, some real taste, because otherwise there's no confidence. So, you know, whether that constitutes enlightenment, you know, then we'd have to decide, well, um, what do you mean by enlightenment? But, yeah, that I don't know. You know, whether there is a being that I've met that really has no tendency towards greed or anger or self-centered thinking, I don't know. I mean, this one uh, monk in Thailand is, a lot of people think he is an arahat, and uh, he really has great energy. But there's no way to know, for me to know. And I'm not sure it's that important either, because as an individual, the only thing that matters to me is, is there a, a path, and am I capable of walking this path? That's the only thing that's relevant to me. And uh, I personally have a lot of confidence that there's a path and that I'm capable of walking it. And uh, that's really reassuring for me. And when I see people, you know, study the teachings of different individuals and hang around some of these people, uh, you know, just, I think you really have to hang around a person a long time before you get a sense because what, what really tells us whether somebody has some degree of awakening is seeing that person in a lot of different situations and, and getting a sense of whether they're suffering. And the thing is, you might even see somebody react in some way, but what we can't see so easily, I mean, you can if you really are intuitive, but to see how identified they are because you know, forces like greed and aversion are there even when somebody has deep states of enlightenment, but not full enlightenment. There's still greed and aversion. Um, it's been weaned to some degree, but it can still arise. So, but but there's it's less sticky, and so it's just like being swept away, but knowing that you're swept away. And, and not taking the pain that comes from being swept away into anger, not taking the pain personally. And so it tends to fall apart sooner. But it can still, from the outside, look like, well, this, you know, the Dalai Lama is angry. I remember somebody saying that, well, the da- I've seen the Dalai Lama, I forget what they said, angry or impatient or something like that, which doesn't surprise me at all. He never claims to be fully enlightened. 
you know, everyone else claims he's, but you know, he never does. Um, yeah, so those are some thoughts. And it's important that people not feel shy about asking these questions because, I mean, or discussing them with each other. Um, because there's, there's something that can get stinky in spiritual circles where there are concepts, but it's like, it, but it's not okay to kind of ask about it or talk about it. Because if it's not pragmatic, it's worthy of suspicion. You know, if the path isn't pragmatic and the concepts that are used don't have any kind of meaning for us, then it's, it's not really, I think it's worthy of kind of looking into and, and sniffing about. Well, if you ever do meet someone like that, you'll invite them all. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I feel pretty confident that most of my, a lot of my teachers at least have, uh, you know, I, I trust their insight, you know, whether that means they're enlightened, I don't know. I mean, like the first stage of enlightenment. But see, it's so interesting. When you read about what people, like so-called enlightened people, say about enlightenment, it's, it sounds different. So it's, uh, that's why it's really important that we understand we have only one thing to rely on, which is our own understanding, our own insight. And mostly everybody else confuses us. Other people's experience confuses us. A really good teacher may say a few things about it, but mostly what they do, they'll do is they'll point us back to what we have come to know through our own paying attention, looking at our heart, looking at the mind, and just our own movement from like, acting in a way that's unskillful and suffering and acting in ways that are skillful and not suffering so much, and then basing our confidence on that, our confidence in the path on that, as opposed to believing in the Buddha as the fully enlightened one who taught the perfect path, which if we grew up in Asia, might have some sort of primitive strength for us, sort of primitive religious strength, just like if you were raised as a Catholic, as I was. You know, I've got some, for me, I think pretty wholesome conditioning from my Catholic upbringing. I know, I know not everybody got that, but I did, I think. I mean, it seems that way to me. And people in Asian countries, Buddhist countries, got that too. So for them, the image of the Buddha is sort of an archetype for all that's good. Now, for us, you know, it, unless you just, that naturally arises for you, we shouldn't try to sort of force that. We have to rely more on, on our direct experience. And, and the reasonableness of the teachings, that too, we can rely on. Because as Westerners, we've been sort of trained to appreciate things that are rational and reasonable. And I think, and I, a lot of people think that the teachings, you know, are just really commonsensical and that they make a lot of sense. And so we can really trust that too, besides, especially because it, it takes some effort, and so we need something to rely on in order to make the effort. And then seeing people around us who have cultivated the path and just kind of checking them out, and they seem reasonable and seem relatively together. And so that can help too. So let's leave it here, take a couple breaths together, let go of the words. And we can, each of us, do our own little prayer as we reflect on our aspiration for our life. So it's like we're talking to our own heart or mind.
What is it that we aspire to, our most beautiful aspiration? And traditionally, we can aspire to live in a way that supports the well-being, liberation, the happiness of all beings, including ourselves, of course. May each of us, in our own way, cultivate this path of wisdom and compassion for the benefit of all beings. May all beings be safe, happy, free from suffering and free from the causes of suffering. May all beings be at ease. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.